Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. Here we are, Ben, in the home stretch of our Inerrancy and Church Splits Marathon Extravaganza series. We've made it. This is episode five, I believe, of the series. I think I've lost count already. We've been taking a deep dive into this idea that the Bible has no errors and what this idea has done to the Christian church through the centuries. We've talked a lot about the Catholic Church's doctrines and the divisions we've seen between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, which led to the Protestant Reformation. Then we started discussing divisions we've seen within the Protestant Church, and we've gone in depth on many of those divisions. Today we're going to start with a viewpoint that I'm excited to hear more about because I know very little about it, but I know, Ben, that you've been looking a little bit into the Unitarian Church. Yeah, so the Unitarian Church uh, has deep roots. The theory of um, the denial of the Trinity has deep roots in the church. It goes all the way back to the early church. But I wanted to start off with a quote um, from Louis Burkhoff, who wrote, The Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations and modes of manifestation, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another. And this is a difficulty which the church cannot remove, but only try to reduce to its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It has never tried to explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endangered it were warded off. So I think that was a, an interesting quote that's sort of going to show how uh, the thought about the Trinity has developed throughout time, um, because it does really, it re- really is formulated in relation to the sort of offshoots and um, what eventually would be known as heresies. The sort of evangelical contemporary view is that uh, the Trinity is clearly revealed in Scripture um, and even is revealed in the Old Testament. So um, we've actually talked about this a little in previous episodes, but the in Genesis 1:26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the evangelical church interprets that as a reference to the, tw- the Trinity. The uh, Hebrew Elohim is a plural form of God, and uh, God is referred to 
um, as Elohim um, often in the Old Testament. We talked a little bit in the last episode about some other figures that have been identified with uh, divinity in the Old, fig- in the Old Testament, um, including angels and kings that are looked at as prefigurations of either Christ incarnation, um, but at least some sort of clues, uh, according to the evangelical church, of um, proof of the Trinity. Um, and then, of course... If you're looking to uh, the New Testament for proof of the, uh, the Trinity, there's the uh, baptism of Jesus where uh, the heavens are opened and the Spirit of God comes down. Um, there's the uh, call to baptize uh, everyone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's also some later uh, additions to the Bible that have sought to really flush out the Trinity in the New Testament. So uh, the King James Version of 1 John 5, 7 reads, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The problem with this translation is that it actually comes from the 14th century. Um, <laughs> and uh, that... No modern translation actually puts this into uh, the Bible, and it's not attested to in any early reliable um, manuscripts or any uh, early testimonies from the church fathers that would uh, recognize it. So the the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that is uh, inferred but has sort of been constructed. Um, so why would this doctrine need to be constructed? Um, well, it's because a lot of groups sort of arose in the early church that failed to recognize the uh, what we would now call the Orthodox view of the Trinity. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about them because they're sort of the uh, forefathers to the modern day Unitarians. So there was a, a attempt to sort of make sense of this mysterious doctrine where there are three persons uh, within the Godhead. And different uh, people in different times in the church uh, have tried to make either analogies that made sense, but tried to make some sort of a way for this doctrine to make sense. So uh, modalism uh, was an early heresy or an early uh, attempt to try to make this make sense. And it's basically the idea that God is not three persons, um, but appears in different modes at different times. So in the Old Testament, God appeared as the Father. Through the Gospels, the same God appeared as the Son um, in the human life and ministry of Jesus. And after the Pentecost, the same person then revealed himself as the Spirit, uh, active in the church. Um, Sometimes this is called Sabellianism. Um, after Sibelius, who lived in Rome, that was in the third century, third century A.D. So we're talking about a really early idea um, in the church. Or sometimes it's called uh, modalistic monarchism um, because he revealed himself in different modes, but it also says there's only one supreme ruler, one monarch in the universe, and that's God himself. Um, I mean, you can obviously see how the doctrine of the Trinity um, would create problems for the Old Testament conception of there being a single God. Um, And so 
um, this was an attempt to say, no, there really is only one God, um, but that he appears in these different forms at different times. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. The, uh, I mean, for me, the Old Testament couldn't be more clear that um, there is one God. And the idea of separating this Godhead would have been um, very controversial or downright heretical. Um, it's one of the biggest objections that Jews have with Christianity to this day is this idea that... Um, any any man could somehow be God or that um, God is somehow um, plural. Now, that is interesting because we were talking last time a little bit about the Elohim, which is a plural term. But, um, I mean, Judaism is largely credited with kind of the invention of monotheism. And so that's the idea, like just one God. Whereas Trinitarians will say, yes, we're monotheistic, but in some sense, um, there is a trinity. And the different ways that Christians have tried to come to a cohesive conclusion about what the trinity is and how there can be one God and three persons, well, are those three persons like just one third God? It's like, no, they're all fully God in some sense. It's, it's that the trinity in and of itself is an unanswerable kind of seeming contradiction. Uh, just on the face of it. So I could understand why a universalist church would say there is no explicit teaching of the fact that there there is a trinity and there is explicit teachings all over the Bible about how there is only one God. Therefore, we're a Unitarian. We don't believe in the trinity. So the question I have for you, Ben, is do Unitarians today, um, do they look at Jesus as a divine figure? Is Jesus... God in any sense, or is he just like lesser than God, the son of God? Yeah, so the Unitarians that exist today, um, it, that church is really a product of the Enlightenment. Um, Thomas Jefferson actually famously said that everyone eventually, this is a paraphrase, but basically everyone eventually will be a Unitarian um, because he recognized that um, there was sort of a, a irrationality associated with uh, the pre-enlightenment religion. Um, so Unitarianism is tied to uh, deism and the enlightenment, um, but they certainly didn't look at Christ as divine then. Um, he was a moral teacher. Um, he taught us like the moral way to uh, live a life that was um, leading us towards God or showing us the way towards divinity. But um, basically was a moral guide um the unitarian church today uh so it's complicated because the unitarian church and the universalist church uh united um and so there there's a lot of doctrinal overlap um and it's a non-creedal church so they don't you don't have to believe anything to attend a, a unitarian church um or a unitarian universalist church but the unitarians are really have had have dealt with um, several post World War One doctrinal crises um, or theological crises by affirming their non-creedal um, 
commitment to tolerance for anyone's beliefs. So they welcome agnostics or uh, lapsed believers or people that are rebelling against God or atheists or Jewish people or uh, Buddhists or um, there's no real uh, creedal demand um, in a Unitarian Universalist church. Um, but and the Unitarian belief has moved has has long since not affirmed the divinity of Christ. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so getting back to kind of our overall point um, with this series, what are the scriptural basis? Well, you went through some of them, but there, are, the divinity of of Christ has been a debate going on since the earliest Christians were around. And um, it's interesting because one of the books that is really credited with having the highest Christology, the idea that that's explicitly saying that Jesus is God, is the Gospel of John. And if you look at John 14, 28, um, Jesus says, um, the Father is greater than I, which that doesn't seem on the surface to align very well with Trinitarianism, which says that they are equal. Um, you know, they're, like Jesus is, is fully God. Uh, I think they would, the way they would square that circle is to talk about how in the earthly form, Jesus was subordinate to the Father. Uh, but again, I mean, when you're talking about the Trinity, the way they answer it is they would say, well, it's so mysterious and it's, and it's, it's not the type of thing that a human being will ever be able to understand. So I think it's interesting to point out that the Trinity is derived from verses, like you said, it's not other than that verse in first uh, John, which is um, I believe it was first John where, which is only in the King James version. And, um, I believe it was, I believe the earliest copy that, that had those words about um, there are three that bear witness, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So the earliest copies don't have it. So it wasn't original. Somebody added that in at some point to, because probably because they looked at the manuscripts and said, hey, you know, this is lacking. We want to um, affirm the Trinity. And, uh, and that debate was happening then as it is now. And um, that was one way of answering it. I mean, it's incredibly late. It's only in the King James. Uh, or it's a very small, unreliable Greek manuscripts. Um, but that's the earliest of them is the 14th centuries. So I was going to talk about Arianism and uh, a few other heresies. But I think it's also useful to think about how not only is it unclear in the scripture, um, and there are a lot of instances where it seems like the Holy Spirit, it's not totally clear that the Holy Spirit is fully... The Holy Spirit, I think, is the biggest problem um, as far as the Godhead because it's just not clear that that's, you know, even if you account that Scripture is speaking in a harmonious way, I don't think it's abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. But I think there's also many places where it looks like Jesus is subordinate to the Father, um, that and so there's just been this whole idea created of like the economy of the Godhead and, uh, but nobody really comes up with a good, um, a good analogy for the Trinity. I thought it would be a fun game to play sometime. We used to do this in college unintentionally, but it would be all the analogies that you ever heard for the Trinity and then identifying what heresy they were. 
<laughs> so it's like you know god exists like water he exists in three different forms well that's that's modalism because you're saying like you know he exists he's the same really but he exists as ice and he exists as you know water or he exists as uh steam right. so <laughs> it, 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 they're all like really heretical i've heard the metaphor of um the of the trinity being like three rivers combining in one waterfall which i guess is probably just another version of modalism if you were to you know give that analogy any one of those analogies to to most um christians around today most of them would probably be okay with it and they wouldn't even realize that it's a it's considered a heresy well yeah that's (laughs) the other interesting part um but these things, the, this doctrine just arose as heretical views came up, came, yeah, heretical views arose, they were answered, heretical views arose even by people that we consider, you know, early church fathers, like Origen, I think had uh, views about Unitarianism, um, and, uh, you know, eventually were condemned, uh, it wasn't like a doctrine that was decided that people dissented from. It was more like as people created these offshoots and mutations, the church had to create some sort of an orthodox position um, in order to limit the diversity of practice that was happening in the church. Right. Um, Because I think that's ultimately the lesson of... that's ultimately the lesson of the early church and I think it's useful to think of the scriptures in that way too that it's a bunch of diverse communities and diverse practices that are reflected in these these uh these books so I feel like I say at every single topic we reach that oh we're gonna do a whole episode on this and uh because there's just you know as you're going through this stuff there's just literally so much to explore uh and you can find a fascinating rabbit hole like every at every turn ben i know you fall into that a lot when you're researching this stuff it's a problem and uh, i mean it's it's a real problem <laughs> i have something like 79 pages uh for, of a document for this this uh show today um yeah i'll just make one more um one more comment that i think is kind of interested so um the nicene creed which partly addressed trinitarian controversy also uh, directly or ultimately led to part of what contributed to the split between the western and eastern church due to what's called the philoque clause and uh it's basically and and from the sun um which was uh, not included in the Nicene Creed in either the first version in AD 325 or the second version in AD 381. Um, they just said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Um, but in AD mm. 589, at the Regional Church Council in Toledo, which is now Spain, the phrase and the Son was added so that the Creed then said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, philoqui which the Eastern Church had some sort of an issue um, with it, and it's part of what like led to this whole split. Well, like I said, there's we could go on all day about any of these, and the um, there's so much to talk about, and I definitely do think that um, the Trinity especially would be, um, that could be a, a series in and of itself, 
and it would be fascinating to go into. But the Unitarian Church, like Ben said, is unified with the Universalist Church. It's the Unitarian Universalist Church. And Universalism is a kind of a totally different concept. It's not, it really doesn't have anything to do um, with the nature of God. It has to do with um, salvation and, and uh, the nature of what happens to our souls after we die. So the Bible teaches, as I'm sure most of you are familiar with, that the Bible teaches about hell. And there are verses um, predominantly in the New Testament um, about, about this lake of fire or a place of everlasting torment where the unbelievers go. I can read it just a couple verses. Revelation 21.8, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the second death. Now, put aside the fact that virtually everybody is a liar to one extent or another or have lied. That would uh, mean everybody is consigned to that that second death but there is other verses so let's go matthew twenty five forty six. then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life um let's see second thessalonians now the apostle paul um they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his might and there's more verses i could go on a lot that you can find them there's a lot in Matthew particularly, but you can find some verses in Acts and a few others from the Apostle Paul and a whole lot also in Revelation. Um, so all this to say that early Christians uh, and Christians to this day believe that there is a kind of a punishment that those that do not believe in Jesus and put their faith in Jesus will go to this place. Uh, I won't get into too much about um, how people define hell. Some people think hell is eternal, eternal conscious torment, which is the most horrific uh, version of this. There's other people that believe, no, it's a, it's kind of a um, temporary punishment. Um, the point I always make about hell is that, you know, the, the entire idea of the gospel is that it's good news. And if the good news of the gospel is that there's a way for you individually to escape this, uh, this horrific place. But most of everyone who ever lived is going to end up burning in this lake of fire. And that's what the perfect restoration of the universe looks like. Um, to me, that's just nonsensical and insane uh, to think that the all-powerful good God of the universe, that that's what the picture of the universe would look like going forward, where you have a huge percentage of everyone who ever lived suffering in a fire with a small percentage of everyone who ever lived in this little paradise. And that's, and that's the picture of like a fully restored universe to me. Like we talk about contradictions. I think that's one of the biggest, but I digress because universalism is the subject that we're talking about now. And what universalism teaches is that no, nobody's going to hell and everyone is going to be redeemed because like I said, there's verses where God talks about redeeming the whole earth and that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just for, as Calvin would say, the elect, but it was actually for the whole world. 
So let me just go through a few of these verses, Ben, and then um, and then we can discuss it. So First John two two. He, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay. Um, th- and this one, this is uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. To me, this one is just, you know, fascinating. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And then it goes on. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that one really like sticks out to me because like that, it's talking about the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and that's that's how sin entered into the world to begin with, and that's the entire reason that we need Jesus, according to Christians, that we need to be redeemed, and there's there's almost no way for me to interpret this verse in any other way than for it to say what it's saying on the surface that everybody is going to heaven all shall be made alive if you try to interpret that to say well all shall be made alive but some of them will be living in a, a fire pit i'm sorry but that's not what the apostle paul is saying here i don't i don't think you can make that case with a straight face um to me this verse explicitly teaches universalism it explicitly teaches that everyone um will be saved so i cannot blame a universalist uh church member for coming to that opinion uh there's a few more verses that i'll quickly go through romans 11:32 so here we are again with paul for god has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all Again, it's really hard to interpret that in any way that has anything to do with Calvinism. And let's go earlier in Romans, Romans 5.18. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So now it's talking about justification. Justification is the act of God that that actually saves you and this specifically says that all men will be justified through Jesus act of righteousness so um, there is a lot more verses that I could get into and um, I'm sure if you're really interested in it you can find them pretty easily but I just wanted to highlight some of those and to say to our overall point um, the Bible is teaching two different things no, I think it's uh, fascinating. Um, I was just like floored by uh, those verses in Romans, like really like floored by them because uh, I don't know if I've only read them in like context and never like been able to draw them out like that. But it was I was just thinking like it would be cool to like the universal uh, theology of Paul in Romans. I want to hear about more just about what Paul is saying about this Um, because harmonizing everything has created a teaching about what the Bible teaches in my mind that does not reflect what Paul teaches and does not reflect what John teaches. And so I'm constantly having to go back to 
what are the what is Paul actually saying? What is John actually saying? Instead of trying to say John and Paul are saying the same thing and creating my own third narrative. So just a little uh, historical uh, critical trick that you have to constantly be doing. Yeah, I think it's hard to remember to always do that, but you're absolutely right. Growing up in the church, like we're so used to trying to figure out, quote unquote, what does the Bible teach on this issue? And I think what we're trying to say with this whole series is that um, that's not the question to ask. The question is better asked, what is this verse teaching or what is this author teaching? It's oftentimes you get a very different answer because again, trying to harmonize the Bible is a fool's errand. Getting back to universalism for a second, I can't stress enough how, go back to our family values episode and you'll see like how shocking um, some of the verses in the Bible where Jesus seems to be saying that in order to be a follower of him, you have to hate your family. You have to hate your father. You have to hate your children, Uh, which, which talk about radical. And I think this is this is equally as radical when you put it in context to modern Christianity that puts such an emphasis on um, scare tactics and uh, putting this threat of hell on everybody where some of the passages of hell, if, if we are going to talk about that, like, so let's say we're trying to derive one teaching out of out of the Bible. Well, most of revelation is really a lot of the references to hell are in revelation and most of them are very kind of obscure apocalyptic poetic very visual i don't think it's a crazy interpretation to say that you really can't take those verses as being super literal i think the biggest problem you would run into is matthew Um, matthew is very clear about a damnation in hell being an actual teaching but again you're you're running directly into these verses by paul i think are even more clear about the fact that jesus work on the cross is uh is salvation for everybody and i i just don't think it harmonizes when you start to think historically then you realize that Paul's letters are the earliest testimony that we have about the followers of Jesus. So if you're really trying to understand the earliest followers and the earliest testimony to what people were saying about Jesus, I mean, you can make claims about Mark and claims about John's traditions that they go back further, but as far as like their, their writing, their writings are later than Paul's earliest writings. <clears throat> I think almost all scholars would agree. So Paul is really, yes. it, to, it, this is how I think about it at least, Paul is the earliest thing that we have to go on when it comes to understanding what the early church was teaching. Um, I also, I don't think that we should think of Paul as necessarily having a systematized theology that's purely consistent because it seems like even in Romans he could be contradicting himself or at least creating paradoxes Um it's fascinating to try to read Paul just as Paul and try to think what is Paul teaching. So Ben, if you, if you want to see something rather humorous, you bring up some of these verses to um, some more conservative Christians who are not universalist. And 
watch them tie themselves into knots trying to explain how everybody is not going to heaven. I mean, they will quote you verse after verse that seem to say that people are going to hell. But what do they do with this these specific verses? They They really don't have an answer to it other than to say things like, well, you use scripture to interpret scripture and, and you we can look at this as when it says, um, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. It all really means the elect. So, I mean, that interpretation is is so flawed that, that, that would be basically saying, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ the elect shall be made alive. That it first of all, it makes the impact of that verse so much less. It makes the analogy um, not make sense. Right. It makes the impact less, uh, and it's also like it doesn't Paul use the elect when he's talking about the elect other places in Romans? Yes. So why well, would I mean, he use it there yeah. if that's what he's talking about? Why yeah, would he exactly. say, oh, and it, it just like doesn't really like make consistent sense? I think first John two two, the one that the first one I read answers that also because it's almost directly refuting that because it says like he is the propitiation for our sins so you would say our is the elect he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world yeah Yeah, well that's interesting (laughs) too it's just these verses you don't hear them spoken (laughs) about and there's not a good explanation for them and um Christians have systematized the Bible into this theology that they take so seriously. And um, a lot of it just completely falls apart with just kind of like a common sense reading. And I think, I think the universalism issue is one of like the clearest examples of this. And I don't see how anybody could blame a universalist for, for teaching that um, all men are saved, all mankind is saved, because the Bible says it almost word for word in many different places. You're not taking it out of context to believe that. You're, you're, believing it. you're reading exactly in the context of what the original, original author said, and it's as plain as day. Um, and to say anything else, you have to add in all these extra teachings that the author did not put in there. It's kind of like when we were talking about the contradiction of has any man seen has anyone seen God at any time? Well, the way they would answer that is they would add in all these little uh, explainers to say, well, it doesn't mean seeing God in any way. It means seeing God in all of his glory and whether or not that has any value. The verse didn't say that. And the same thing here, like, you know, the author, the authors of these verses are being very clear. They're crystal clear with what they're saying. And I understand that it, that taking hell away from the church, you know, it, it also takes a lot of the power away from the church because that's one of the, it's one of the driving forces but that the church uses to get people into the pews. I mean, you go back to the Catholic church with selling indulgences to, you know, lessen the amount of time people are in purgatory. Um, and I just think that this is not a convenient teaching for orthodox christianity but i don't think you can get around that these are things that really are taught in the bible yeah i don't want to sound like dan brown but i think that you're exactly right uh in your assessment i think that it's ironic so we've covered a couple of them so far um in our discussion but there's these there's this idea that 
um, there was almost a cottage industry around it too, where it's like Jesus is is this teacher who's going to say these things that are going to make you uncomfortable, or why you know the gospel is um, anathema to uh, to the world, or it's going to be something that is. I, I guess it's that it's just it's something that's going to make you uncomfortable. Like you got to be ready for Jesus. And what they really meant by that was, like, you know, it, you're going to have to learn how to hate different ethnic groups or uh, people's sexual orientation or you know, and stand by those commandments. But what really is the uncomfortable stuff is the stuff that we've talked about: hating your mother and father. Um, all are saved and that's you know that stuff is threatening to the power of the church and that's why you don't hear about those verses right okay ben let's move on um to the various views of the end times Uh, i know you've looked a little bit into this one also yeah so the good thing is we're finally going to talk about a topic that's really clear Uh, because when it comes (laughs) to the end times there's nothing if not clarity um, right. So the end time really comes down to um, three different beliefs that center around the millennium. Um, and I'm sure that there's a, a million different offshoots of um, eschatology, which is the study of end times that we could go down. But we're just going to try to keep it relatively simple. Um, so the millennium, the term comes from Revelation 20 verses four through five, <clears throat> where it says that certain people came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Um, and also in Revelations 22 through 3, we're told that the beasts um, had been bound him uh, for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. Um, and it harkens back to Old Testament prophecy uh, in Isaiah and some t- prophecy in Psalms um, and uh, some in Zechariah. Um, but the real question comes down is uh, when this millennium is going to occur and if there's a great tribulation, um, will the Christians go through the great tribulation? Those are really like the questions that... Uh, the debate centers on um, and the first belief is amillennialism and it's called amillennial because it maintains that there's no future millennium yet to come um, they believe that revelations 20 is now being fulfilled in the church age and they hold that the millennium described is currently happening um, they don't hold to a literal millennium of a thousand years um, it's just a figure of speech for a long period of time Um, where God's uh, perfect purposes will be accomplished and Christ will return. Uh, Resurrection will be for both believers and unbelievers. And uh, the bodies of believers will rise and be united with their spirits and enter into full enjoyment of heaven forever. And unbelievers will rise to face the final judgment and eternal damnation um, as we all actually sit before the judgment seat of Christ. And they get that from uh, the same place that we would get it, Second Corinthians 5.10. Um, so that's the basic view of amillennialism. Uh, and then there's the view called postmillennialism, uh, which, again, you can probably guess from the prefix post means after. 
Um, according to this view, Christ will return after the millennium. According to this view, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that larger and larger proportions of the world population will be Christians. And as a result, there will be uh, significant Christian influences on society, and society will more and more function according to God's standards, and gradually a millennial age of peace and righteousness will occur on the earth. So this is the... This view is... Uh, like the dominion view, um, the view of uh, churches that are trying to transform the culture um, to make it more Christian. Um, a lot of times um, are post-millennial churches where they're trying to usher in a Christian age on earth that can then uh, lead to Christ's return. And then there's premillennialism. And there, even premillennialism is uh, fractured and split. Um, but pre means before. The premillennial position says that Christ will uh, come before the millennium. It has a, a long uh, history in the uh, church. Basically, it says after the tribulation happens at the end of the church age, uh, Christ will return to the earth and establish his millennial kingdom. Um, the same thing, the believers who have died will be raised from the dead. Um, they'll be re reunited with their spirits, um, and the believers will reign on with Christ on earth for 1,000 years. Um, and some believe it'll be a literal 1,000 years, others think it's a symbolic expression for that period of time. Um, there's pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism, um, which is usually associated with dispensationalism. According to this position, Christ will return uh, before the millennium, and also before the uh, tribulation. The uh, believers will not have to go through the great tribulation. And uh, this is sort of like the uh, Left Behind series or uh, A Thief in the Night was a movie that I think John and I watched when we were in high school where the believers all disappear off the earth and then everything really goes to hell both literally and figuratively. Um, as like the devil uh, comes to power or the Antichrist comes to power and uh, persecutes everyone on earth. Uh, some people uh, believe that the tribulation, it will be a post-tribulation but pre-millennial view and that is uh, a pretty mainstream view in the evangelical church, I think. Um, although all these views, except for mostly amillennialism, I don't think has... Uh, too many followers, but most of these other views have uh, various followers in the evangelical church. I think that's funny, Ben, because uh, the church I grew up in was squarely amillennial. Um, and uh, because I, I just think that, you know, you're dealing with revelation and, um, it, you know, John Calvin, the, the classic example is that, you know, John Calvin in, in Calvin's commentaries Revelation was the one book of the Bible he didn't touch. It was just like this is this is crazy. And in fact, the uh, preterism is uh, a belief that is popular among many Reformed people. Where my understanding of preterism is basically like many of the, if not all of the aspects of the Second Coming were totally fulfilled in um, A.D. seventy with the destruction of Jerusalem um, by the Romans. And like that, that actually fulfilled all of the uh, prophecies of Jesus about the second coming. 
and um, it's convenient because it gets them out of the all the issues of Jesus saying that these things will all happen in the lifetime of my uh, followers. And uh, well, AD 70 was in the lifetime of some of, of some of Jesus followers, historically speaking. Therefore, well, it was fulfilled. Although if you if you look at what the second coming, what Jesus himself says about the second coming, it's far more um, of a supernatural event than what happened in AD 70. And um, anyway, that, that's a little far afield. But yeah, I think that trying to, this is a good example of you, you're taking this apocalyptic writing from the first century uh, and you're trying to derive some kind of theology about the future, like in our time and going forward, which the author probably had no thought at all about 2000 years from now in the future. So if we were to talk about, you know, some of the other, uh, like, I think the last topic we talked about universalism there, I think it's pretty much a direct contradiction. Like certain verses basically say, some people are going to heaven, some people are going to hell. And then there's other verses that say, no, everyone's going to heaven or everyone will be saved. This, I, I would say, lands squarely in the category of ambiguous because those verses in Revelation are poetic and they're, you, you really just simply cannot derive a clear um, eschatology uh, from those verses, in my view. Yeah, I think that's totally the case. I mean, it's the everybody starts out with they when they are thinking about the millennium uh, in Revelations twenty, and even that, there's no agreement on the terms. And I think that once you start dragging all the other prophecy uh, that's far in a field in the Bible together and trying to formulate some sort of a cohesive theology it gets really complicated um because again i mean this theology i think some theologians smart theologians just avoid this stuff altogether because it's so unclear um and we've seen how people's whole lives have been totally derailed by making predictions based on uh, biblical prophecy like i don't remember who was the radio pastor who used to predict the world was going to end every oh yes okay Harold uh, Camping. Yeah, Harold Camping. I mean, like, essentially, the guy was like a normal pastor until he just started predicting that the world was going to end every, you know, 1994, <laughs> and then that didn't happen. He had to readjust his numbers, and, you know, he became just a joke. Yeah, and I think ex exactly right, but to our point here, I mean, I think Harold Camping, he's come to mind a bunch of times as we've been going through this because here's a really smart guy, you know, like really knowledgeable about what the Bible teaches, and um, it shows you that, you know, really smart people just can come down on like so many different sides of these things. And um, yeah, I agree with you. I think that end times, positions that people take on the end times can actually be some of the most dangerous um, beliefs that, that people can have because it has such far-reaching effects when you talk about somebody like Doug Wilson and the theonomy or movement. Or Kirk Cameron. Or, <laughs> or Kirk Cameron. I mean, forget no, about it. No, not as much. Li not talk as about much. lives destroyed. <laughs> um, Kirk Cameron is responsible for... Just think about how much bad media that guy has put out that we've all been subjected <laughs> to. 
um, <laughs> that's happened in human history. Well, growing pains, growing pains was pretty. Yeah, good, right? well, growing pains. That's not. That's not what I'm talking about. I guess. I guess you have to okay. balance the good with the bad. Although I, <laughs> I hear this is a. I know this is clearly off topic, but I hear that he was super problematic on the growing pains uh, set. Like he was like <laughs> oh, he was true? like yeah he wouldn't approve certain scripts because of his Christianity and um, he had problems well, with Mike Seaver doing certain things. If you take somebody like um, Doug Wilson, who you mentioned, you know, Kirk Cameron is going out and trying to persuade people to become a Christian. I don't really think that that's what Doug Wilson is doing. I think that Doug Wilson is an actual danger because what he's trying to do is force Christianity on the rest of us, on everyone else by by actually enforcing it as law. And um, that this is this is what I think is very scary about, you know, Dominion theology or, or whatever name you have for it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, if you take the view that you're supposed to be Christianizing the world, um, whether it's Dominion theology or uh, postmillennialism, um, it's a scary concept for the rest of us. I mean, ha- the Handmaid's Tale is now like widely known. Um, but that used to be a relatively obscure novel that uh, spoke to that whole concept of like a Christianized uh, country where, you know, you have like the Old Testament basically enacted. Yeah, I mean, I think you have most Christians, um, you know, the Great Commission is basically you go out and make disciples of Jesus. And uh, so most Christians have the idea that we need to Christianize the world in one sense or another. I, I don't have any problem with anybody in this world trying to logically persuade somebody of something that that is a good idea or a bad idea. Um, but I do have a problem when they try to force ideas on people, um, you know, whether they believe it or not, it's it's going to be the law of the land. I just think is a you get into all kinds of problems. Well, Ben, I guess that kind of wraps it up. There's so much more we could have gotten into. Um, on future episodes, I'm sure we will touch on each of these individual topics. Um, I hope that you guys out there will let us know what we missed or what you'd like to hear more of. Um, there's a, a couple other topics that we could have mentioned in this. We could have talked about um, some other big ones like the prosperity gospel um, and what what type of biblical verses that they rely on to come up with their um, teachings and um, the division that that's caused in the church. We could have talked about liberation theology and uh, what how they use the Bible in very different ways. And we could have talked about smaller ones like exclusive psalmody, where that's the belief where um, when you're singing in church, you should only be singing uh, psalms. You should not be singing any hymns. Um, and I actually have some experience in churches like that. So, unfortunately, yeah, we, so, and well, and you have King James onlyists who say you should only use the King James. That that's the, that's the perfect inerrant word. Everything else is, is not, well, um, that has all kinds of problems. Yeah. You'd at least have um, clarity on the Trinity. Right. That's true. So anyway, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed um, that discussion of 
um, all of these different divisions and theologies and teachings in the Bible. And um, we will definitely come back to and explore a lot more in, a, in future episodes. Um, all of these things will be kind of an umbrella uh, or a lens that we will use to look at um, all kinds of issues that come up in the Bible. And I think it's important to kind of have an understanding of where the church has stood on all these issues uh, through the centuries. And um, I, again, hope you uh, enjoyed it. But now, Ben, let's do another segment of Bible versus Bible. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. Hello and welcome to Bible versus Bible, the segment where we take a look at two seemingly conflicting passages in the Bible and we try to determine if in fact it is a legitimate contradiction or not. Uh, today we are going to look at one from the Gospels, this being between Mark 16 and John 20. So I will read the passages. In Mark 16, 2, it says, And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And then, so this is talking about the resurrection of Jesus and um, the women coming to the tomb in the morning. Uh, they actually came to anoint the tomb. And in John 20, verse 1, it says, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. So, in Mark, um, they go to the tomb at the rising sun, yet in John, it says it was still dark out. It's a problem. Yeah, I mean, the uh, it's this is really complicated because we have four canonical gospels and um each of them have a resurrection narrative now in um mark we have parallel verses to this in luke and matthew because they are synoptic gospels meaning they come from the source and the source being mark so it'll be interesting to take a look at what luke and matthew say about this as well yeah i sort of uh broke this down and it's difficult because the resurrection narrative is one of the places where there's so many differences between the different narratives. And even within the synoptics, there's differences, which makes it even more complicated. Usually the synoptics are speaking somewhat in harmony with each other. But when it comes to the resurrection narratives, there's a lot of uh, variations. So but we really just want to focus on the time because that's the thing that we're trying to nail down here. So the Gospel of Mark, very simply, when we're trying to discover the the time of day that we're talking about, gives us the most details because the Gospel of Mark says, and very early in the morning, just as the sun was coming up. So that's totally clear that he's talking about early in the morning as the sun is coming up. Right. But maybe, you know, He's saying that it is still dark. The sun's coming up, right? Uh, so what do you think that Luke and Matthew, how would they interpret Mark as they're reading it? Because we know that they have it. Well, when it comes to the uh, time of day, Luke says, at daybreak. Okay, so that sounds, again, like the sun is coming up. 
But maybe, maybe they're both saying, I mean, daybreak, even though it sounds like that's clearly there's light there. Maybe he's still saying that it's dark. Well, Matthew says first light. So, I mean, the assumption is that we can say that the synoptics are probably talking about the same time of day. And they're talking about the sun being up in the morning. Um, Again, morning, I think, implies to me that there's light. So, to me, I'm picturing early morning, the sun is up or coming up, there's light. And that's what uh, Mark is describing. But John is saying early on, okay, that sounds like the same as what Mark is saying, and still dark. So, I mean, clearly, one is saying light and the other one is saying dark. They're not saying the same thing. Raymond Brown says that if the expression early leads us to think of the period between 3 and 6 a.m., the evangelists do not agree as to when in that span of time the women came to the tomb. In general, the Synoptic Gospels favor an hour when it was already light. Luke 24.1 speaks of first dawn, or through Bathios, the Gospel of Peter, which is not obviously in our, our, our uh, Bible, but uses just or through. I think that's for, um, so it's probably like dawn. Mark 16.1 and 2 reports very early when the sun had risen, the later phrase being almost a direct contradiction of John's report. Um. So Raymond Brown thinks basically like John is trying to harmonize the synoptic gospels, even though he's telling a different story. Um, he's maintaining Mary Magdalene as the first person that is the, the witness. And that darkness for John is a motif basically because in the tomb, Mary doesn't recognize the risen Christ. She doesn't, she still doesn't know that the person she's talking to is the risen Christ. I mean, John telling a story a certain way makes sense. Well, I think the interesting thing here is that you have to read it in context to what we know about the resurrection accounts where there's, you know, this is right in the middle of a story where there is lots of other um, contradictions going on. So who, what women came to the tomb? What did the women say? What did they see? We're not talking about resurrection contradictions here because there are a lot and there are some very serious ones, which on other episodes we will do during Bible versus Bible. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on on this. It would be interesting. But I think that um, in this particular slice about the time of day, I don't think it ranks very highly. But when you put it in context to what we know about how John is really telling a completely different story than the synoptics. And even in the synoptics, Matthew's telling a very different story that has a lot of important details that Mark and Luke don't have. So I think that um, when you recognize that stuff, then this highlights something that really is a problem. And I think Raymond Brown kind of points that out. Raymond Brown is obviously looking looking at this in the totality of what John says and recognizing that, hey, John's telling a different story for a different reason here. I think that Um, I can totally understand just a phrasing while it was still dark for people may have meant, oh yeah, it was really early. The sun was just coming up, but it was, it was basically still dark out. Um, but like I said, I think you have to look at it in context of what we see in, uh, the other gospels and the rest of John. And then we realize that there actually are some really big contradictions involved in the resurrection accounts. Yeah, uh, Raymond Brown also brought up another point that I thought made me chuckle, and I think that you may have even told me this before, 
Um, but he says that some tried to harmonize the synoptic uh, Johannian discrepancy by maintaining that when Mary arrived at the tomb first, that it was still dark out, but that by the time the other women got there, it, it had lightened. So um, John says it was dark, but you know the other accounts say that it was light because they got there a little bit after. Yeah. Pretty, I, pretty I, funny. Yeah, I've definitely heard that before. I mean, um, when people try to harmonize the resurrection accounts... Um, to make them all cohesive so that you could tell one accurate version of the story. Um, they have to do things like this and, and have a lot of linguistic gymnastics uh, going all over the place to try to make this work coherently. It's actually a really fun exercise to do if you take all the basic points of the resurrection account and in, from the various Gospels and try to line them up into one cohesive chronological narrative um, it's incredibly difficult to do, if not impossible. And um, it just highlights what we've been trying to say, like in this whole uh, podcast, that like that's the wrong thing to do because each writer is telling the story the way that they want to tell the story for their own purposes. And they're certainly not trying to say, my gospel is saying the exact same thing as this other gospel over here. No, they're writing their own account of it. And by doing that, I think you're really doing a disservice to the original author. Yeah, you end up telling a resurrection account where the most unbelievable thing is the way the characters are acting because they've been running all over the place and don't seemingly know what they did five minutes ago and uh, are going back and forth from the tomb and don't remember whether they saw the resurrected Lord or, you know, yeah. they met angels and men. Yeah, and the whole tone um, is constantly shifting between um, dark or bright depending yeah. on, I mean, it's, it just, uh, it makes no sense. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. 